Hard to believe you could have more fun than hanging out with me, though, right? I heard that. All right, take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and these guys will be glad to give you one. Colossians chapter 1. All awake? All right, so we'll make sure. We'll stand up, do calisthenics. I don't know what those are. I heard they were pretty cool. Though. A couple things I want to mention to you before we get started. Number one, just to thank you. I'm going to continue to thank you for uh, your giving to the bus fund. It's uh, gradually moving up. We're getting there, moving, and I think we're up to 20, over $25,000. So uh, just thank you for your gifts and appreciate you doing that. Also, I mentioned to you several weeks ago that, gosh, it may, may have been six, it may be longest two months ago now, anyway, that we were in the process of putting together an, an emergency response team in case there was an incident here like what happened in uh, other places around the country. And then, then on Easter Sunday, we have that thing at Bellevue that happened right here in our own city. So we have put our team together, and we have a plan, and it is in effect as of this morning. So if there were an incident, you only have one responsibility, and it's to make sure nothing happens to me. So what we decided is that we'd have a code word. If something happened, they would flash me the code word, and then I would say the code word, and everybody would know what to do. The problem is I would forget what the code word is, and I'd be screaming, shoot, somebody shoot him and protect me. That's what I'd be doing. So, no, seriously, we have uh, some guys in place, and they're very capable, um, uh, many law enforcement as well as others, and so we're, uh, we're confident that uh, we have a good plan. Having said that, you have one responsibility. If something were to occur, on a very serious note, something were to occur, all you need to do is just get under the chairs. Do not, run, don't, do not get up and run for the exits, uh, because if there were happen to be a shooter come in our building, something, you know, we've got people who are going to handle it, but we don't need anybody in the way. Does that make sense? So your responsibility, and again, we, we pray to God, it, obviously it never happens, but were it to happen, you have one responsibility, and that's just to get down and, and stay down. And we we got people handling the exits and the, and the lobby. And we fortunately, the way this building's constructed, we don't have a lot of uh, doors. To You're going to come in the building, you're coming in that one door. So uh, we'll make sure you knew that. And I'll probably mention it again over the next couple of weeks uh, as uh, everybody's here. So I want to make sure you knew that. All right, turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We are looking at, beyond Easter, the fact that we have a ministry and we need to understand that it's important for us as Christians to know and to realize and to be just, for lack of a better term, to use an analogy, you ought to be really pumped up about who it is you are in Christ. The very fact that Jesus made redemption possible through his death, burial, 
and resurrection. The very fact you can know God on in an intimate, personal way. You are his child through a relationship with him in Jesus Christ. You ought to realize and, and be excited about your purpose in life, that you are a Christian. Every believer, according to the word of God, is a priest. Every believer is in the ministry, not just those of us who happen to have a position with the church or have a title or have a ministry, whatever it might be. Every believer is in ministry. Wherever you find yourself, in every relationship, it is simply, in the mind of God your Father, an opportunity for you to minister to that person. And so we began to look at that last week, and if you'll take your hand out, you've got there, and you'll see the blanks that are filled in. I'm not going to go back over those, but I want to set the stage to move into where we are today. We look at it beyond Easter, what is our ministry and how significant it is that God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, literally in the Lord Jesus Christ, through us, is speaking to the world and offering reconciliation, that you can be back in right relationship with God, the way you were created to be. Adam lost it for us, paradise lost. In Christ, it's been bought back. And we have the, the high and lofty privilege to extend to our world a hand of reconciliation through the work that Jesus Christ did at Calvary. So we talked about last week our ministry to the church and the source of our ministry being the gospel and the foundation of it. And we're looking at now in Colossians chapter 1. If you'll turn there, let's begin in verse 23, just where we were last week, and let's transition into verse 24 as we're looking at our ministry to the church. Verse 23, chapter 1. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and you're not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, you're born again. That's basically that statement, which is preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. That's where our focus was last week, that you're born again. The world, we talked about it through creation and conscience, realizes there's a God, and now you get to, through your, the ministry of reconciliation, is to share with our world who Christ is. But he's the ultimate manifestation of God. He is God in the flesh who came to redeem, and we get to share that with our world. Now, transitioning to verse 24, where we left off last week. I, Paul... Now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. So we began last week to talk about the suffering of our ministry, to understand that it is part of and parcel of being a believer. It comes with the territory. Paul told Timothy that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It is part of of being a believer. Now, the mindset we need to understand is that it's ministry. It's not saying, oh, woe is me, and why is God doing this to me, and, and why me? It's saying to God, thank you, Lord. The Bible makes it very clear, repeatedly in a number of places, that we are to be grateful for everything that comes our way, good and bad, because every one of those is an opportunity to minister. And in reality, if you think about it, in life in general, the opportunity you have to minister the most to people is usually during suffering. When someone's hurting, or maybe, maybe something you're going through, we're going to talk more about that in a moment, that when difficult times are happening to someone, you can be there for them, to pray for them, to 
put your arm around them, to just be there and to share what the Lord can do for them and get them through this. If it's a fellow believer, as you're praying with them, if it's a non-believer, you show them how the Lord has helped you and, and that you are there for them and you care about them. And through that process, praying for the opportunity maybe to share the gospel with them as a non-believer. It comes with the territory. We have to understand that we will suffer. We began talking about that last week. I want you to notice in James chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, but just listen to what James chapter 1 says. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And that word various in Greek means daily. So let's read it that way. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into daily trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience in those daily trials. Keep that context in mind. Daily trials. What's going on in your life all the time. So the testing of your faith in the daily trial produces, number one, patience. Patience having its perfect work as it works in you, that you may be, it says perfect, that means mature, and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, notice the context, in the midst of daily trials, you need wisdom. If you need wisdom, ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now notice, here's what he says. You're going to be in daily trials. And you need to understand that in the middle of that, it's an opportunity. That that trial that you're facing, God wants to use that to work patience in you. And in patience, as that matures you, makes you a more effective witness for Christ. And so you ask for wisdom. And I, I love this because it's been so relevant in my life. It's so helpful in my life to pray for wisdom. We, it's a word we use a lot. We throw around a lot. Let me give you just my, my definition. This is Randy's, and you can take it for what it's worth. But I believe when the Bible talks about wisdom, that basically what it's talking about it's looking at the functions and all the things that happen in your life on a daily basis and looking at them, wisdom is, looking at them and seeing them the way God sees them. Lord, give me wisdom to handle this situation. If you've got children, you probably pray this on a regular basis. Or give me strength. Wisdom. Lord, how do you want me to respond here in a way that will glorify you. Let's put those two words together because that's what suffering is about. The how you can rejoice in that. Here's why. That when that daily trial comes my way, there's a good possibility that the other people will be involved, whether it's at work or it's in your family or, or in relationships with friends or wherever it might be, that the trial that you're facing probably will involve someone else. If nothing else, it will involve your family as you're trying to get through it. But more than likely, it will involve other people that you're in some relationship with, whether it's work, friend, whatever, family, whatever it might be. So here's how wisdom and glorification work. So you pray to God as a believer. Lord, give me wisdom to handle this in a way that glorifies you. Here's what you're saying. God, I want to see this from your eyes. What's the best way for me to handle this? so that they will see you. That's what glorify means. 
Wisdom is, Lord, I want to see it the way you see it. Glorify is, Lord, I want other people to see you in this. Does that make sense? So as I face that trial, I'm saying, Lord, how do I handle it so that they see you? Lord, how do I handle the fact someone that I'm very close to is dying of a terminal illness? Or I've been diagnosed with that. Or I just lost my job. Or I've got this family crisis. Lord, how do I handle it in a way that honors you? And by so doing, let other people see you at work in Randy's life. And they'll say, he doesn't just talk about this Jesus stuff. He believes it. He lives it. It's real to him. So you can rejoice in your suffering, and here's why. Talk more about it in just a moment, but because it gives you an opportunity to let people see how God really works, who God really is. I share this with people all the time, and I guess they get tired of hearing me say it, but it's so true. I, I do a lot of funerals, and I deal with a lot of people that are in that moment. There are two situations where you'll genuinely generally and usually find out where people are spiritually when two things get involved. One is death and the other is money. That's when you'll find out where people really are spiritually and, and how important their walk with Jesus Christ is. Is it just lip service or is it life service? Jesus Christ put it this way. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and they say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Jesus said it is a blessing to be persecuted for the kingdom of God. And by the way, the word in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed. That word blessed means spiritually happy. Blessed are you, spiritually happy, when people persecute you for the name of Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Well, look at verse 24 again, a little closer. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Notice the things he rejoices. Why? Number one, for you. And I fill up my flesh what's lacking the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul can rejoice in his sufferings, and so can we, because it's for other believers to encourage them. You see it throughout his writings. That it's for other believers. He says it three ways here. It's for you. It's for the afflictions of Christ, that I can honor Jesus Christ in my life. You can see that. So it's for you. It's for the church. It's for his body. He says it three different ways. Here's the point. Non-believers are going to see you, yes, and they will get a, God, a glorification of God. What well, God is truly worth to you. That's what the word means. Correct estimate of what something is worth. So they're going to really see what God is worth to you as you handle your daily trial, whatever your persecution might be. For the church, it is an opportunity for you to encourage them, believers, fellow believers, that they'll see in you how you handled it, and if maybe they're praying for you, and they see how God answers that prayer. They're seeing how you responded to it, and maybe they're facing a trial. Or if they're not now, what do we know? 
They will someday. They may not be right at the moment, but it's coming because everybody faces difficult times. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, Paul said again, will suffer persecution. Now look at his second response there in verse 24. Not only rejoicing in it, you're sharing in it. You're sharing in it. Verse 24, fill up in my flesh what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. In another, in another of his letters, Paul put it this way. I may know Christ. My prayer is that I might know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. The word fellowship means sharing in common, being conformed to his death. That my life in that very same chapter, very same book that I just quoted, it's when he says, my life is to magnify him. I want to magnify him whether in my life or in my death. And then for me to live as Christ and to die is gained. He said, I simply exist to magnify Jesus Christ. I love the way the Bible puts it when he's talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist met Jesus. You remember that when he saw Jesus the first time, what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And later on, he's talking about himself, and he says, I am not the light of the world. I came to bear witness to that. And if you read it in the original language, it's a beautiful picture, because here's what he's saying. I'm not the light, but I am a lamp to reflect the light. Think about a lamp at your house on your nightstand or wherever it might be. It's nice, it's there, but for it to be useful to you, what do you have to do? You turn it on. And when you turn it on, it illuminates. It reflects the light that's under the shade, the bulb, it's there. The John the Baptist, it's there. John the Baptist is the lamp. You're the lamp. The light's within. When you turn it on, and it reflects the light within, the Christ that is in you, reflects out. And one of the primary ways that's hap that happens is when you're in the midst of suffering, God wants the light that's within you to reflect on those that are around who are in darkness. Think about that. Non-believers are in darkness. Here you are, the lamp that reflects the light that will, as Peter put it, take you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his marvelous light. When you become a believer, that's our opportunity. We get to share in that. Christ came, suffered, died so that we could be redeemed. We get to suffer so that we get to share that with each other and with the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul put it this way. As the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation or comfort abounds through Christ. If we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation. He's talking about being persecuted, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, you will also be partake of the consolation. He said, we could suffer now, and it will encourage you. 
and in your walk with Jesus Christ, maybe even to your salvation. But there'll be a time when you'll be going through the same thing, and you can encourage someone else. In another place, Paul put it this way, and it's beautifully, a beautiful metaphor. He wrote this. He said, yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering of the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Now, let me explain drink offering because it will really help you understand this, and then we'll move on. Paul expected to die when he wrote those words. And as he writes them, he says, If I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. What he meant by that was a drink offering in the Old Testament, the, it was, another term for it was a libation, but a drink offering was something that was taken like a, a wine or an oil or something with a scent to it, and it was poured over a sacrifice that you were going to make on the altar at the temple to make it smell better, to enhance it as it was sacrificed. It enha it, the, the odor, the aroma rose to God like an incense and like prayers, that's a metaphor for prayer, that as that aroma rose to the nostrils of God, it was a beautiful aroma. So it was one sacrifice that was poured on another to enhance the other. Here's what Paul is saying. If by my death, it enhances your sacrifice for the kingdom and your walk with Jesus Christ. I'm thrilled about that. By the way, that's the way the early church lived. As Rome persecuted them and put them in the arena and people like Nero would sew Christians up in bags alive and throw them out to wild animals to devour them or put them in bags soak them in oil, and then light them as lamps simply because they were Christians. When they would not deny Jesus as the Christ, then they would suffer to the point of death. And by so doing, the Bible tells us they turned the world upside down because they took their faith seriously. They were willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. You read about the life of the Apostle Paul and all that he went through physically, just incredible list of stuff. And we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, and he refers to it as a light affliction. Left for dead, beaten, stoned to the point they thought he was dead, poisonous, on and on and on. He said, in the light affliction, what really burdened him was the churches. So when they thought of Paul, they were encouraged. They were encouraged in their walk with Christ. So Paul says suffering is our ministry because it brings us closer to Christ. It assures us that we are his. It reminds us that this life is not our home. Our home is the next life. It's an eternal perspective. And it's a witness to non-believers and an encouragement to fellow believers that we're we're on earth, whatever the time span is, 40 years, 50 years, 100 years, whatever it is, that my time on earth is temporary. My time with the Lord in the next life is forever. And my home is eternal, not temporal. My home is my citizenship, Paul writes, is where? In heaven. 
So I'm a citizen of heaven on vacation for God on earth till it's time to go home. In another place, put it this way, you strike your tent. When you strike a tent, what are you doing? You're tearing it down, temporary dwelling place, and you're going where? Another place in the New Testament, it says you set sail from one shore to the next. You're going home. And so it focuses you. Now let's go to verse 25, the next point. Our ministry to the church. We saw the suffering of our ministry. Let's look at the stewardship of it in verse 25. Paul says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. His purpose in life. He knew his purpose. I became a minister to the church. It's fascinating when you think about that. Because prior to the road to Damascus, he asked Paul, what do you do for a living? What's your purpose in life? Would he have said be a minister to the church? What would he have said about the church? My job is to be a thorn in the flesh of the church. Interesting, he got one of those later, wasn't it? My job is to be a persecutor of the church. My job is to be an executioner of the church. My job, my purpose, and by the way, I'm really good at it. I won the gold medal at the last persecution Olympics. I'm really good at this. My job is to go around those people that are followers of the way that Jesus of Nazareth, I'm going to persecute them to the point they lose their jobs, they lose their status, they lose their standing, they lose their place in the synagogue, they lose their family. In many cases, they lose their lives. That's my job, and I'm really good at it. I love the story where Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus and blinds him, and he gets saved. And he says, now, I want you to go and take the gospel, the good news about me, the one you've been persecuting. I want you to take that to the Gentiles. That's your new purpose in life. Take it to them. Gentiles and Jews, primarily Gentiles, take it to them. The good news of the one you persecuted who you were my number one enemy, and I've saved you to go tell the world who I am. Who I am. Paul knew his purpose. I am to be a minister to the church. He put it this way in another place. If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And there's an exclamation point at the end of that. For I do this willingly, I have a reward. If I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I've been entrusted with a stewardship. Now, back to verse 25 in Colossians. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. So here's what his purpose was. To be a minister to the church. The word minister means servant. He was to be a servant to the church of Jesus Christ. That was his stewardship. This is a great word. When I was growing up, in the, the church that I grew up in, every time you heard this word, people were like, oh, God, he's going to ask for money again. Here we go, stewardship. And yes, that's part of it. I want you to see this picture here. Stewardship. 
Here's what the word meant, particularly in that culture. It meant to manage a household for the owner. In that culture, someone who was wealthy, who owned property, had a nice home, had servants, would hire someone to be the manager. He was called the steward. And his job was to oversee all the servants, to handle all the business affairs for the owner so he could go do what he wanted to do, his financial and everything else. It was a position of great responsibility, a position of great trust. The owner trusted you with his money and with his property, with his people. Notice verse 25 again. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you. It's from God for his church, for you, from God for his church. Here's what Paul was saying. Despite the fact I was his number one enemy, despite the fact that I was anti-God, anti-Christ in every way you can be, he reached down, he saved me, and he gave me a ministry to his church. From the owner, the owner's trusting me to share, to take care of, to shepherd his sheep, his church. They are special. That's his children. Be like you hiring somebody to just come in and run your house. Take care of everything, including your children. You trust them that much. Also, God has given me that stewardship. How special that is. Look at the top again. There's number one, ministry to the church. Beyond Easter, I need to understand. You need to understand. Every believer needs to understand. I've been saved by the God of the universe, who is now my father as a believer. And he said to me, son, daughter, here's your ministry, whatever it might be. You're a servant. You're a steward. I'm trusting you to manage my affairs. I'm going to give you this opportunity, whether it's your time, your talent, your treasure. God gives those things to you to manage, to steward, because they're his. He gives them to you. I don't know how much time I have on planet Earth. God does. How long has he known about me? Since before he created the universe. He saw me standing here. He also sees me in my casket right now. He also sees me tomorrow. He, there's an appointment for me. It's for another man wants to die. I don't know when that is. I do know it's coming. In the interim, God gives me time. Whatever that time might be, he gives me time to use to glorify him. As I do life, we exist, we go through life. Every moment, it's just simply an opportunity. Just by being kind, just by being caring, just by being Christ-like in the midst of whatever you're doing. It's an opportunity to minister. You're being a steward of that time. Same thing with your wealth. Same thing with the gifts that God gives you. He gives them to you to use for the kingdom so that people will be drawn 
to the God you serve. It's about God's will, God's objective. It's God's kingdom. Now notice the end of verse 25. Why is it what's going on? To fulfill his word. To fulfill the word of God. That in Greek simply means to preach it fully and faithfully. And it does not mean preach in the sense of what I'm doing right here, even though that's part of it. It just simply means to herald the truth. Faithfully. Daily. And in every place you find yourself. God's will. God's time. God's way. Not mine. The one thing I want to hear when I pass away. The, the clarion words call that every believer wants to hear when they pass away is for Jesus to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Not perfect, because you're not, but well done. That when you are imperfect, when you mess up, you own up to it. That's all God wants. He knows you're not perfect. And by the way, he knows what you did wrong. He wants you to talk to him about it. That's what prayer is. It's for you to realign yourself to be what God wants you to be. So verse 26. We've looked at the ministry of the church. Let's take just a moment and look at the mystery of the church. It's a word Paul uses a lot in his writings. Verse 26. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, God's saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. Everybody you know, everybody, whether they're honest, tell you or not, deep within their soul in the depths of their being, they're looking for a reason to have hope for tomorrow. Some have it. Most just do life. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have hope for today, for tomorrow, beyond the election, down the road, into eternity. As a believer in Christ, you have hope. Look at verse 26 again. The mystery been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. His saints. In the Bible, you know what a saint is? A really good Christian, right? Is that right? No. What's a saint in the Bible? Anybody who knows the Lord? Anybody. So, as we sit here today, if you're born again, guess what else you are? I want you to say it. I am a saint. And you're thinking, no, 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 not me. <laughs> maybe my mom is, and maybe my dad is, maybe my grandma is. No, you are. Did I say you were a perfect saint? No. But you are a saint. That's what God says in his word. The saints aren't the super Christians. The saints are Christians. So notice, verse 26, that mystery has been revealed to you. Now all these people you know, 
who are looking for hope, who are looking for purpose, who are looking for meaning in life, you know the mystery. You know the answer to the secret of the mystery of life. Notice verse 27, the last phrase at verse 27. There's the secret, there's the mystery, Christ in you. The hope of glory. Now that glory means twofold. Glory beyond the grave, going to be with God forever, yes. But more importantly, in the context that you're looking at here, it means the hope of understanding who God is right now, glory. The Shekinah glory of God, that light, that presence, that's in you, in Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The word hope in the original language means confident expectation. I know my God. If we're Christians, we have hope. Non-believers don't have that kind of hope. They wish and they hope. We don't hope. In another place, Paul, 1 Thessalonians, Paul said, we don't sorrow. That's the reason we handle death differently. We sorrow, yes, but we do not sorrow as others who have no hope. We sorrow with hope. We sorrow knowing the future. We sorrow knowing our loved one in Christ has gone to heaven. We sorrow knowing that we will be together again. Our sorrow is temporary. But if you're a non-believer, and I mentioned earlier, death is when you really find out where people are. And that's the reason I love to do funerals and I do a lot of them. It's because you know people are hurting and they're looking for what? Hope. And you know you could share it with them. Why? Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory, the meaning of life, the purpose, why we are here. I've mentioned this to you before, this whole idea of Christ in you. The greatest miracle God has ever performed on this planet is taking you from being lost to being saved, raising you to new life in Christ, the resurrection in you spiritually. Jesus walked out of the tomb physically so you could be raised to new life spiritually and spend eternity with God. New life, Christ in you, the hope of glory. One last point we're going to stop today. Look at verse 26 again. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations but now, in the church age, or the last days, has been revealed to his saints. It's a great picture. It's been revealed to God's children. You and I, the mystery that Paul constantly refers to in his writings is the church. The body of Christ. Jews, Gentiles, We'll talk about this next week, being one. Do you understand culturally what a radical thought that was? Jews wanted nothing to do with Gentiles at all. They considered them less than human. Then Paul takes the gospel to the Gentiles and he writes repeatedly, Jews, Gentiles, one. 
One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one church, one body, the church, the body of Christ. We're in what's called the church age, also called the last days. Began when Jesus came, he ascended. It will end when he comes back, the second coming. In the interim, he's talking about this mystery that's been hidden. That's how special we are. That's where I want to end today. When the prophets in the Old Testament wrote, God revealed to them that a Messiah was coming, and that he had this great plan, but he never revealed to them all the details. You know who he's revealed it to? You and me in the church, in the New Testament, in the coming of the person of Jesus Christ. So this age that we've been privileged to live in, this time, this church age, we have a ministry. It's the ministry of the mystery that we get to share with our world. The church is not what you think it is. Church is knowing God as your father and having meaning, purpose, and hope in life. That's been revealed to us so we get to turn around and share it with our world. Especially in the United States of America. We got that so confused. What a great time to be a Christian in a culture that's turned its back on God. Like the early church. I mentioned it earlier, what did they do? They turned that world upside down. By the way, the same God that died on the cross, the same God was in the arena with them as they died. That same God is in this nasty old former grocery store that you're seated in today. Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Greater is he who's within you. And that's a plural pronoun than he who's within the world. He's here in our lives we get to go out and say to the world he's real Jesus Christ will change your life forever because he's God the mystery is our ministry Would you bow your heads please Lord as we wrap up today we thank you for allowing us calling us saving us giving us new life in Christ, allowing us to be part of your body. That as individually, we get to be a brick in the great building that you are making. That corporately, we get to say to our world, we are the church. We are his body. We are his bride. We are his family. We are the saints of God. One day, those saints will go marching in. We get to be part of that in Christ. Lord, I thank you for that amazing privilege. I pray as Christians we'd be convicted maybe that we haven't taken that as seriously as we should. We don't realize every day is an opportunity to minister. We would understand that each of us is a minister of the church. Share that great mystery of Christ in me, the hope of glory. Corporately we would do that, stand for that as a beacon, and that individually we would take that incredible news everywhere we go. Lord, if there's somebody seated here who's not a believer, they would realize at this moment Jesus died on that cross to give me hope. 
I need that hope. And say to Jesus, thank you. Thank you for dying in my place. Please forgive me. Save me. I need that hope. I want to be part of that building, that church. We commit this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.